0: Welcome to Voices United, a Congregational Song Podcast. I am your host, Benjamin Brody, and today I am happy to welcome hymn writer and scholar Carl Daw. Carl is an Episcopal priest and former executive director of the Hymn Society in the United States and Canada. My interview with Carl was conducted in Boston, Massachusetts in January 2023. Well, welcome, Carl. It's wonderful to have you here on the podcast today. Thank you for joining me. Oh,
1: I'm glad you could do this.
0: I wonder if you could start by telling us a little bit about your earliest memories of hymns and congregational singing, and how did your childhood experiences shape your vocation as a hymn writer?
1: Well, my father was a Baptist minister, and so that meant, as I described it when I was six years old, that we were in church twice on Sunday and not so long on Wednesday night. And all of those occasions, of course, involve singing. So I cannot remember when I was not in church singing. And even before I could read, I was singing, because I would catch the words, because I was in church so much, uh, that I would hear the same things over and over, and I uh, could sing them. Um, so I, I have just always known congregational song and uh, it is interesting to me that I, as I have uh, wandered around from one de- denomination to another, uh, certain things continue uh, and form a kind of spine of uh, memory and faith that uh, might be surprising to other people mm. how how much that continues.
0: Mm. Mm. Uh, tell us a little bit about your faith journey.
1: Well, there wasn't much journeying for the first 18 years of my life uh, <laughs> given uh, my circumstances uh, but then when, as often happens when one goes off to college uh, I began to do different things uh, at, at first, I, I did go to a local church for a while, but then more and more i didn't uh, and I always carefully I uh, scheduled my letters home on Saturday uh, so that I w- would be as far as possible from Sunday and didn 't really have occasion to mention that I hadn 't gone to church that day. <laughs> Uh, so, uh, the, it, it's a classic case of how uh, one person uh, making an invitation uh, to another is still one of the uh, most effective forms of evangelism. Mm-hmm. Because in, in my suite, uh, in the dorm, uh, on the other side of the, the bathroom that joined them uh, was a, a person who was very active in the local uh, Episcopal Chapel. Uh, there was a separate chapel just for the university where both students and faculty worshipped, and he invited me to come with him, and I did. And I really liked it uh, because uh, for one thing the the mix of students and faculty was very different from the local church, uh, which was townspeople more and and the the college students were much fewer in in that milieu and uh, the it was a, an interesting experience because the chapel itself was what would be called high church except that their vestments uh, were very simple uh, for example the, the chargeables instead of having uh, elaborate decorations on them had decorations outlined with ordinary rick-rack ah. and ah. so there, there was this, this really appealing mixture of simplicity and complexity and I, there were always wonderful discussions in the coffee hour afterwards. And so that is what gradually led me into the Episcopal Church so that by the time I went to graduate school, I was confirmed in the Episcopal Church. Uh, and so that, uh, along the way, of course, there were a lot of... Uh, Things I doubted and questioned. and I, interestingly enough, it was always the music that brought me back. Uh, uh. Well, yeah.
0: Thank you. Was that? Um, where was it that you did your undergraduate? Study? At
1: Rice in At Rice? Houston. Okay. Mm-hmm.
0: okay. That's
1: great. Um,
0: tell us how you first came to
1: write the hymns. Well. Uh, By the time I got to seminary, I I had read, at the beginning of my second year of seminary, I read that uh, the uh, General Convention had just set up uh, the mechanisms for a new hymnal, and there was this thing called the text committee, And the chair of the text committee was my liturgics professor, Marian Hatchett. And uh, so (laughs) with with the the courage of a a person who doesn't know what he's doing, uh, I said to Marian one day, I would like to be on that committee. Of course, I didn't realize uh, that the mechanism for this kind of thing what was very top down, and what had to be appointed in these committees by a some part of the general convention, a strategy, sort of thing. Um, uh, fortunately, uh, there was a, this was Swannery, uh, where I was in uh, seminary, and Marion said, "Well, as a matter of fact, we haven't." Uh, a meeting coming up next month in Nashville uh, so why don't you just come along and uh, sit in on that meeting and we'll see what happens hmm. I I supposedly thought I could be useful because by that time I had my PhD in English and so I figured they thought I could at least punctuate <laughs> uh, and I I very much enjoyed sitting in on that meeting. Uh, wonderful people, and um, so I, afterward, I, about a week after that meeting, Marion let me know that there had been a kind of consensus that uh, people had enjoyed having me there, and I, I, I offered. a a different kind of perspective, because I was the only seminarian uh, who happened to be involved, and so I became a a consultant member of the text committee for the hymnal 1982. And along the way uh, we had so much revision to do, because we were trying uh, to reduce the gendered language, Uh, we were trying to uh, Increase the uh, references to God in ways other than with masculine pronouns. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are lots of things to do, and there were uh, there was just questions of language that needed to be revised for the sake of clarity. And so we, uh, I started out being assigned things like, uh, could you rewrite this line before the next meeting, or could you. Uh, Give us a a different stanza before the next meeting, and eventually, um, it, it worked up. To the The one of the goals of that uh, committee was to provide metrical paraphrases of all the canticles mm-hmm. in the Book of Common Prayer, uh, and so I did a couple of those. Uh, And then came my first real hymn uh, of my own, because the tunes committee had been working alongside, and every so often they would come in with a hymn where they said, we really like this tune, Uh, and want to add it, Uh, what do you think of the text? Well, the tune they came in with this time was Peter Cutts' Bridegroom, and... The original text, as you may know, is very, very masculine in its orientation. uh, As the bridegroom to his chosen, and things like as the father to the home. No mention of the mother. Uh, And so everything was so masculine, we said, no, we're already dealing with enough masculine text. We don't want to add another one though we could see that it was a quite lovely tune. And so uh, the assignment to me was uh, go create a text for this tune before our next meeting.
0: (laughs) Had Uh, you you written poetry up to this point? Well,
1: as an undergraduate, I'd written some very bad verse. (laughs) Uh, Mostly free to the point of... Incoherence, but uh, I, my, in the interim before I went to seminary, I, I was an English professor uh, at William and Mary, and uh, one of my fields was eighteenth century, so I had a lot of experience of uh, people uh, like Pope and Swift uh, and other poets uh, of the eighteenth century, which, in fact, is is really where. Uh, modern English uh, hymnody gets grounded with watts and so on so the the idiom was very familiar to me Um, so I was sent off to write a text for Bridegroom and so I played it over and over again I I, I listened uh, to the podcast with Mel Bringle she talks about uh, how engaging it is to work from the music back. And I've done that several times. And on this first hymn, I played it over and over again and finally heard in the very last phrase uh, essentially the words, Come, Holy Spirit, come. And so once I knew where the text was going, that it would always end with, Come, Holy Spirit, come, uh, I was able to construct the uh, the stanzas so that the first stanza talks about how the Holy Spirit comes, the second to whom the Holy Spirit comes, and uh, the third stanza talks about the gifts that the Holy Spirit brings. Uh, and so that was my first hymn, mm-hmm. like the "Murmur of the Dove" song. Mm-hmm. Um, so, after that, there was no turning back. <laughs> uh, then, the, the, the next one I wrote in a, in a similar kind of thing, where we were requested to, to have a text for a particular tune, uh, it was a Day of Peace to Jerusalem, mm-hmm. uh, and that one was a double whammy, because, first of all, the tunes committee wanted that tune, and then... The Episcopal Peace Commission had been asking for a new text regarding peace, and so <laughs> the committee said, why don't we do more than one bird at a time here? Uh, and You know, it's always the danger. One should never do something successful on the committee uh, because then they will give you something else to do. And so they said, You did such a good job with Bridegroom. Why don't you take Jerusalem and give us a hymn about peace? Mm -hmm. Uh, And again, that Jerusalem is such a particular tune. It, It was written so carefully for the original Blake text. That trying to do anything else with that exact pattern of stresses and and uh, duration is really a challenge. So uh, again, that that uh, was writing from from music back to the words. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was that's how I got started, and I I so very much valued the experience of starting with a committee, with a group of people who were encouraging. Yeah, I yeah. think that's the best possible way for anyone to start writing. Uh, and the some of the things they gave me as feedback, I still hear in my head uh, things like, verbs are better than nouns, <laughs> and, and other kinds of perspectives that I, I probably wouldn't have learned, at least not as fast, on my own without their help. And so I I greatly appreciate the opportunity to get feedback. And now I I still do it with uh, one or two people uh, by email. I say, okay, here's a new text, what do you think? And unfortunately, these are people who will tell me exactly what they think. So sometimes they like it, and sometimes they say, no, not that line. So it's very valuable to have that kind of feedback before one ventures to uh, offer a text, uh, a new text, uh, to a congregation.
0: Yeah. I feel similarly about uh, tune writing. That, yeah. Uh, you know, it's, it's always better when I've gotten feedback from right thoughtful people who, yeah. who do a lot of work in this area. Yeah. And even every once in a while, I don't take their feedback, but it still has made me think through and, mm-hmm. and be able to carefully give a rationale for why I'm doing it this well, it, uh,
1: with With students as with texts, the, the, every so often you think, I want to do something different here, yeah. when in fact what the feedback is you need to do something that doesn't stand out there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think sometimes those of us who create text and tunes uh, are too afraid of doing something similar to what's been done before uh, and feel we have to be so new and different when the effect of that is more to throw off the congregation rather than to engage mm-hmm.
0: them. I'm just curious, Do you um, have you ever had a point where you felt like or wondered, have I lost my ability to write
1: a good text. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Uh, Especially when I'm given the commission. Yeah, Uh, Those are often the hardest things to deal with because, depending on the situation, trying to do something for a congregation for an anniversary or that kind of thing, just to do a we were we are we will be in yeah. three stanzas a 77 double uh i mean that's that's yeah. i don't i want to don't want to do that Um uh, one of the things i've learned is helpful is to get a sense of the space as much as possible the space in which these things are going to be sung yeah because first of all i want to know whether it's going to be a resonant space because that makes a difference in, in in what can one can venture and also sometimes I have found for example that elements in stained glass windows in the space mm-hmm. uh, have suggested images to me mm-hmm. that I can incorporate into the text uh, and help it feel custom mm-hmm. made for that congregation mm-hmm. and uh, that has been very much appreciated. The thing that always amazes me, continues to amaze me, is how things written for particular places and particular occasions can turn out to be valuable and engaging to other congregations. I, I never thought, you know, I never thought of it having a life beyond yeah, necessarily yeah. that particular event Uh, the classic example of that for me is my hymn As We Gather at Your Table uh, which was written for the anniversary of a church in Virginia and I thought of it as being a hymn just for that occasion what they had said is they wanted a Eucharistic hymn for their anniversary and so I wrote one Uh, and that has now become the most frequent reprinted of my hymns, yeah. uh, which, is, which just amazes <laughs> me because I, I, didn't, I didn't think beyond you know, helping them with that particular time. Yeah. But as is often the case, what is most specific becomes most general.
0: Yeah, yeah. That's great. That's really helpful. I want to I come back to one thing you said in, your, in this last little bit, that moment where you went to your liturgy professor and said i'd like to be on that committee you know i i often talk with my students i advise all of our freshman music majors at Mm -hmm. at whitworth university and um and i often tell them in that first semester pay attention to those little moments and often you won't even be able to look notice it until you look back Mm -hmm. Um, and you can find and you can identify that was that You know, that what may have seemed at the time um, sort of haphazard or or by chance, but perhaps was the Holy Spirit,
1: Mm.
0: you know, nudging you. um, And look at what has come of that. Just because you said, I think I'd be interested in in being a part mm -hmm, of that.
1: mm -hmm. I, I certainly had no expectation that I would end up writing hymns. I had really thought in terms of you know, more like editing, perhaps, yeah. uh, because I knew from my experience uh, in English literature, I knew how to do editing uh, of texts yeah. and uh, I thought that's what I would probably be doing. Uh, and of course, there was some of that involved, definitely. but it, it really it really became my vocation, yeah. uh, which, I had never expected, mm. and so, as you say, it, it's those little moments. It's kind of like the, the butterfly effect in in our own histories. Yeah, yeah. yeah, The the small thing that makes the big difference. Yeah, yeah. That's
0: great. I wonder if you could um, share a little bit about um I have another question on your sort of biography. You had you began your career as an English professor. That's right and then returned and went to seminary. Yes. What, could you share a little bit about what, what went into that? And, you know, I tend to think uh, often in academia that's a Well, of course, settled. <laughs>
1: the, the, oh, one part of it is that because my father was a Baptist minister, I knew far too much about the way the church is. <laughs> and the, I knew a great deal about uh, how, how difficult it can be to be a clergy person. And I, <laughs> I, I said, not that. Not that. Not me. Not that. <laughs> well, again, you have to be careful about what you say is not, because um, I, when we were in Williamsburg, I, my wife and I shared uh, uh, the music director responsibilities as volunteers for our Parish that was the alternative uh, to Bruton Parish, the the big church in Colonial Williamsburg, and the the priest we had after a while was a person we found I found difficult to get along with because he often was not prepared uh, on Sundays uh, and. Uh, That this is the point where the Episcopal Church had the new prayer book, uh, the 79 prayer book, but did not yet have the the new hymnal, the 82 Mm. hymnal. And so we were trying to find hymns that would go with readings, uh, and they didn't have anything in, the, for example, the Baptism of Christ which is now a, a major Sunday, which is passed yesterday, has many hymns about the baptism of Christ in the new hymnal. In the former hymnal, <laughs> there were a grand total of three hymns that even mentioned the baptism, and some of those were like one phrase in a, a big hymn. So it was, it was hard uh, from week to week to, to do that, mm-hmm. and it, it was very frustrating if we'd spent a lot of time trying to find hymns that reflected the scriptures, and that would be a week that the the priest would say, oh, I've been doing so much counseling this week, I didn't have time to write a sermon, so why don't the boys and girls come sit down by me uh, here near the altar and I'll read them a chapter of the Velveteen Rabbit. Oh. <laughs> uh, you can imagine how frustrating that was yeah. to people who had... <laughs> sweat, blood, and tears to find hymns that would work and then have it completely blown away. Uh, and many was the time I left church beating on the steering wheel and saying, I could be a better priest than that. <laughs> After a while, this little boy says, okay, do it. So, um, and, and again, it was one of those things where in my academic life I was busy uh, seeing to it that I got tenure, which I did, uh, and it was one of those things that you thought this is what you wanted, it's not. Yeah. Uh, it, it really took me to the point of having tenure to realize I didn't really want to do that the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. As much as I liked it, it was not the thing for me. Um, so, it's one of the reasons why it's important always to remain open to possibility because if you decide too soon what everything is going to be, it probably shouldn't be. Yeah.
0: Well, and I mean, it seems strange to say this, but thank God for a poor minister in yeah. your setting because. I mean, in in a certain sense, it, it seems as if if yes. you had a wonderful priest and great preacher, if, yes, you if, may not have
1: come to... If I had been uh, content and fulfilled, uh, I would probably still be at William & Mary teaching English <laughs> literature. Yeah. That's fascinating.
0: I, um, I want to come back to... You were mentioning that you... When you write new texts, you have people that you send those to for feedback, mm-hmm. and I know that you have mentored uh, many other text writers yeah, and still do. Yeah, um, still do. Yeah. Um, what does that look like for you? What What goes into that? What do you? Um, how do you do that well?
1: Well, part of it is that there has to be trust uh, in both directions, because I can tell you from doing things like uh, the text workshop at a Hymn Society conference, uh, that if there's no sense of relationship, uh, people find it easy to be defensive and intractable. So uh, somebody that doesn't know me or doesn't trust me, and I say, you know, you really need a different word here, you know, I I I've I've often got the but that's the word God gave me. Well, I think it wasn't God. Yeah. Uh, there's a wonderful article that uh by John Boldevin who teaches at Boston College uh on the difference between idols and icons. Uh, I cite this in the in the preface to my salter. Uh, and we need to be able to look at words and see whether they have become important in themselves and become idols or if they are icons that lead beyond themselves to something else and uh, the attitude that this text has to be exactly the way I wrote it uh, is, is an idolatrous way of looking at a text and we need constantly to be open to the possibility that revision or new insights or something else might help us make that text iconic uh, so that it leads beyond itself uh, into a greater truth. It's not there for itself, it's for what it leads to. Yeah. yeah.
0: Uh, What or who has most influenced you in the writing of, of hymns?
1: Well, going back to the text committee, for the hymnal 1982, I had the immense privilege of being on that committee with Francis Bland Tucker, uh, who had been on the committee for the 1940 hymnal. And one of the remarkable things about Bland Tucker was that he remained open to revision and new insights so that uh, some of his texts from the 1940 hymnal that uh, used man uh, or uh, uh, his or other other things that we were trying to get rid of Bland himself would revise those texts he 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 did not stand on, you know. This is how I wrote, and this is how it has to be. Uh, and so there, there's a. It, it's very significant if you look through the hymnal, if it, it has Bland Tucker in REV for revised. That meant he did the revision, as opposed to ALT, meaning a revision was done by the committee. Oh, uh, and he he was he continued to be open to. Uh, new ways of saying things, uh, and he was wonderful at uh, bringing in uh, materials from the early church, um, and I, he also had a marvelous sense of humor. Uh, one of the things we did at one point. Was we spent, this is like 12 people spending an entire afternoon, thinking how many person hours that is, uh, dealing with how to handle that text, Guide Me, O Thou Great Jehovah. Because the seminaries had made it very clear to us that Jehovah is a made up word and it really shouldn't be in the hymnal and we need to have something else. And so, we went round and round with various uh, experts on language and so on. Uh, you know, we considered the guide No, the Great Redeemer, which is uh, often sung in the British Isles. Uh, we couldn't get around that, and so, as we often did, uh, we said at the end of the, that day, we said, "Bland, will you work on this overnight and report to us in the morning?" Well, we were staying at that point at uh, an Episcopal convent in Sewanee and so we all came down to breakfast and Bland comes padding in in his house slippers and he gets his cereal and so on and sits down and doesn't say a word and he says, well Bland, what did you you come up with? and he, he smiled gently and said, I think from now on we should simply sing, Guide me, O Thou Great You Know Who. <laughs> <laughs> Which is both funny, but it's also incredibly profound. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the, the the inability to name God is something we, we ought to celebrate. Yeah. So uh, we, we eventually stayed with Jehovah, but I, I cherish that moment, <laughs> because I, I keep in the back of my head, what would Bland say about this? Wouldn't he do a you-know-who? I mean, he was a, a charming, wonderful man. Uh, and the, the interesting thing about Bland Tucker is that his mother uh, was Mariah Washington Tucker. She was the last person in the Washington line born at Mount Vernon, and she was once in a meeting of Episcopal church women who were, believe it or not, actually doing kind of one upsmanship about, well, I was born on Beacon Hill and that kind of thing. And finally they came around the room to Mrs. Tucker and said, this is the woman born at Mount Vernon, they said to her, and where were you born, Mrs. Tucker? She said, on a farm in Virginia. <laughs> um, that kind of <laughs> humility. Yeah. Uh, bland had it, too. Uh, so I think it's really important for us to have a sense of connection with living people who are doing something important. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons why I think mentoring is such an important thing for people to do
0: and I, I think too about um, the world of, of hymnal editing and preparing mm-hmm. new hymnals and how you know every new hymnal is building on oh yeah you know so so that you know the the hours that the Episcopal committee spent talking yeah. about one issue 40 yeah. years ago has it continues to benefit. Yeah, you know, the Presbyterians or the Mennonites or whoever's creating a new hymnal
1: today. Well, that's why it's so remarkable that uh, Sam Young edited both the 64 or or 66, it's dated differently by different people, and the 1989 Methodist Mm -hmm. hymnals uh, because he could bring uh, the experience of the former hymnal to the new project, yeah. Mm -hmm.
0: That's great. Uh, What process do you follow when writing. You've you've talked a little about sending it to others.
1: First, I panic. Uh, It's like, how can I possibly say anything I haven't already said? That's that's the first question. Uh, And especially like, I I recently done a, a commission where it was specified that a particular tune should be used. And it it was a, a, another one of those tunes that's very difficult uh, to say anything other than the original text because uh, the the music is set in those patterns. The danger of doing a a commemorative text is that it so often uh, lacks any sort of challenge or or. Uh, anything other than a kind of satisfaction with where one is, mm. uh, and that's not anything I want to write. Yeah. And so I I find that the, th- the things I really enjoy doing are uh, writing hymns for things that haven't had hymns written for them. Uh, in fact, just a few weeks ago, last Sunday of Advent, the, the Gospel reading was the appearance of the angel to Joseph telling him to go ahead and, and marry uh, to Mary, Mar- Mary. and um, there are actually no good hymns about that and I, most of the hymns about Joseph in fact talk about his role as guardian to Jesus and, and uh, being a, a role model and that kind of thing but there, there, I could not find any hymn that dealt specifically with that encounter, mm. and so I wrote one, mm. and it was a real challenge to write, uh, because uh, it is uh, it ha- needed to have some struggle yeah. I- involved in it. That. Uh, so, I, that's the the kind of thing I particularly enjoy writing is is. A a hymn about a situation that hasn't been examined in him. One of the things that has stuck in my head for years now is some years ago at a hymn society conference, I heard Barbara Strauss talking about the Moravian book, and she said, "You know, singing is very important to Moravians," and uh, she. Mentioned a a bishop uh, whose name I don't remember, but what I have never forgotten what the bishop said. What he said was, If we don't sing it, we don't believe it. And there's so much truth in that, that the, the, the things we sing are the things we believe. And in fact, that had been our watchword when I was on the text committee for the 82 hymnal, our editor. Uh, Ray Lover, of Blessed Memory uh, said we want to be able to sing what we believe and believe what we sing and that was, that was our watchword yeah. all the way through that project uh, and, and I, I think about the I know from experience as a parish priest that if I say something in the pulpit that's different from something in the hymnal people will tell me, they will say but that's not what the hymnal says, <laughs> yeah. and it's kind of like, what do you know, Buster? You know, it's in the hymnal, so yeah. that's right. Yeah. Uh, so it's uh, the people trust what they sing. <clears throat> that's very important. <clears throat> and so anyone who writes for people has to keep in mind that uh, literally you're putting words in people's mouths and yeah. you're putting ideas in people's heads, uh, and. Uh, feelings in people's hearts. And so you have a a real responsibility in, in that trust that's been given to you.
0: Voices United, a Congregational Song podcast, is produced by Benjamin Brody with support from the Hymn Society in the United States and Canada and Whitworth University. Special thanks to the Center for Congregational Song for publicity and technical expertise and Whitworth University student Saul Cuddy for editing and production.